0: be a beautiful audience welcome to another episode of unverified accounts i'm chris here with liza and philip what's up guys hello hi uh once again a reminder if you like us please le- leave us a five-star review uh or write a review and recommend us to all your friends and all that and this episode we are going to talk about white by brett easton ellis and eliza thanks for recommending this book this is kind of a episode we hadn't quite planned but we just Happened to re- enjoy the book and I think there are a lot of fascinating things in it. I happen to be reading American Psycho, total coincidence at this time. <laughs> Which so, cover do
1: you have? Do you have the one where it's like a photograph, uh, the close-up of the guy or do you have the first edition?
0: Uh, I don't know what the first edition, it is the close-up of the guy who looks way too old to actually be Patrick Bateman. Does so it, I don't know doesn't who this- he
1: look like Guy Pierce?
0: Yeah, Guy Pierce, Val Kilmer. Th- yeah, that's the vibe I got. But who is this supposed to be? Because Patrick I don't know who it is. only supposed to be 27. This guy looks like 47. So <laughs> I don't know who it <laughs> is. But that's
1: the cover I have too. I'm just wondering because I've been searching for years for the first edition artwork and I can never find it. And if I do find it, it's too expensive.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely not having the movie cover. That, I, don't, <laughs> no, don't I refuse to buy that? a book with that. a movie
1: cover. I refuse. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's um. It reminds me of okay. I don't know why I had this as a kid, but I had the novelization of
2: Batman Forever. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my. Wait. They exactly. they wrote the screenplay first and then they novelized it afterwards. Is that what? We well, do it
1: a lot no, no, the, the because movie, I have no, the movie
2: um, came out. Oh, go ahead, Liza.
1: Oh no no no! I was gonna say that there's like the novelization of lots of movies, and they're always like <laughs> so
0: bad. Yeah, I, I think I think these are the book that didn't exist before the movie but the movie comes out for whatever reason i don't know who buys it well me apparently <laughs> they create a novel version of the movie and i had that so it always makes me feel if i have those covers that I'm bu- i am bought a novelization of a movie even oh, as if opposed that book to existed. like
2: the original book yeah yeah here yeah
0: <laughs> and, and those are always garbage i have absolutely no literary value uh, so it just it's just depressing when you see it. So, <laughs> okay. yeah. all right. So you have to be careful. So, you know, um,
1: speaking of like book covers that were made horrible by the movie poster, I think uh-huh. I Am Legend is one of the worst um, incidents. Like it's one of the oh. worst ones. The is I Am wow, Legend book? book. And then when the movie came out, they put Will Smith on the book cover. They changed the book cover.
2: Uh-huh. Why? Was the original cover great?
1: It's a lot better.
2: <laughs> I think it's probably Because the original book Was really good Right <laughs> The movie yeah. kind of ruined it Yeah Well yeah. it sells So I mean That's that's how it is yeah. I was about to
0: say You got to be careful About buying uh, If you buy Used books online um, I never See I never did that with the Virgin Suicides because I was afraid I would get the one with Kirsten Dunst on the cover. <laughs> uh, so I had to buy it in a bookshop. Sh- I mean, I bought American Psycho in a used bookstore. Well, so. if you
1: go to Thrift Books, you can pick your cover. You can pick oh, really? the edition. Okay. Yeah, really?
0: Yeah. I mean, I try not to buy used books on Amazon anymore. But back when I used to, I was always worried about books that were... The movies which were as popular or more popular <laughs> that, than that—that's your
2: concern. You're not concerned about pages being like missing or something.
0: No, I've never had that problem.
2: Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I just bought a used book from Amazon, like on their uh, whatever they're like, you know, used from other vendors, and like the first ten pages are have a huge gash ripped into it. <laughs> oh no, that's not good. <laughs> but it's still it's still readable, so it's I salvaged it.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So before we move on to white, uh, there's just some stuff that happened in the news lately. Uh, I think most seriously, we got to talk about is this recent wave like this you Mm -hmm. know recurring wave of violence uh, against particularly elderly asian americans stuff we saw uh you know almost a year ago when when coronavirus first started hitting now Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there seems to be just like a new one i can't keep track of them all i I think the one that has gotten the most attention is the the elderly thai man Mm -hmm. his name is visha Ratankampi. i think
1: the 84 year old that that was killed Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the the guy was pushed. Um but there are others. Uh recently there was just like yesterday I saw an amber alert go up on Twitter because this Asian American couple's like minivan was stolen with two of two of their young children <gasps> still inside. Luckily the, the kids have been returned and mm-hmm. they're safe now, but that happened in LA some I think some jewelry store got robbed and and some Asian Americans died there. It's just it, it's fucked up. And um I've seen some people speak out uh even even celebrities uh mm-hmm. I mean not that they matter but it, it's like if it's bad enough that even Asian American celebrities are talking <laughs> they, about then it then you know, know it's, it's done yeah. yeah I think Daniel Day Kim Daniel When, when even Wu, even mm-hmm. Asian
1: American celebrities are forced to care about Asian Americans
0: yeah, yeah uh yeah. Simu they never Lu, care. um you know I I've seen people speak out about it um but yeah uh what what are you guys thoughts
2: i was kind of like racking my brain around why this sudden wave came out of nowhere like was it just like a domino effect where like a couple bad incidents happened like the the thai man was murdered and then people thought oh we should like keep reporting on these things that are probably happening all the time right but But now it's a trending
1: topic you mean
2: yeah sort of right like that's kind of because i i don't like i don't believe for a second that this kind of shit wasn't going down you know since the beginning of the the pandemic and now right so yeah. it's just a matter of whether or not the the mainstream media wants to actually cover it, which right seems suddenly like, they're
1: getting clicks on this kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, and the other thing I noticed about it too is that it's all happening in you know LA, SF, you know Bay Area, that kind of thing. I mean, obviously because there's a lot of Asian folks there as well. Um, but at the same time, it's like you know you can live in a very liberal space and not necessarily be safe,
1: right? Mm-hmm. As as Asian Americans mm-hmm. was
2: one realization I had. Um, yeah. 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 Very tragic. Actually, I- shit.
0: There was a Filipino-American man in New York City who wasn't killed, but his face was, like, slashed. Slashed oh, from yeah, ear yeah. to ear. Yeah, but, yeah, most of it seems to take place in California. And coincidentally, I just finished watching Warrior, the TV series. Mm-hmm. Great show, by the way. Listeners, Um, you should check it out. But you watch a show like that, and it's no surprise because, you know, that's the hotbed of, you know, the anti-Asian sentiment from, you know, the first Chinese immigrants. So, you know, underneath that thin veneer of white liberalism is a deep uh, history of... Anti uh-huh. anti Asian racism. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: I made the mistake of going through Instagram stories.
0: No, um, huh. I know.
1: I was avoiding it, and like I was really happy for a while. Did you but see? I don't know what it's like. I want to torture myself. Um, so I went through Instagram stories, and I did notice, which is a good thing. Um, I will lead with the good first. That there are <laughs> a lot of people talking about this, like. Crime wave, you know this all Mm -hmm. this violence against um, elderly Asians. But my problem is how it's being talked about. So it'll be like this big, like it'll be like you know the the, the Instagram story will have like it's nothing but font, and they'll say things like, "What if I told you that it's okay to talk about violence against Asians without being anti-black or pro-police?" And I'm like, "What exactly is your concern?" It doesn't sound yeah. like you're concerned about the violence against Asians. It sounds like you're more concerned about like optics or like you're Looking more bad, concerned. Yeah. Oh, it, it bothers me. It's like, are you concerned about Asian people or are you concerned about, like how, how you perceived off? on social yeah. media? Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. yeah you seem more right?
0: concerned that this wave of violence is going to be highly inconvenient. For their social media image, uh, in the in the wake of uh, Black Lives Matter protests from last summer, and the whole at this point, what we probably know is is merely a superficial trend of posting, you know, uh, a cab or anything like that. I mean, we saw that after the the Capitol Hill riots, all the pro FBI, um, uh, you know, <laughs> collaborators, how committed they were to the idea. These of These people like, need an- to be arrested. It's like, wait, didn't right.
1: you, weren't you a cab like six months ago? Yeah. Or, no, or, you I, know, def- I,
2: I kind of disagree with that a little bit. I think it, it's actually like a modification of what you said, Chris. It's it's not that they, if they were concerned that, that like talking about this was going to hurt their social media, like, you know, image of being like an activist or whatever, they just wouldn't speak on this at all. And I think a lot of people aren't even bringing this up at all because it's very uncomfortable, right? Because of the black angle. I think what they're doing instead is that they are talking about the, this, but they're kind of tiptoeing around it and trying to co-opt it, right? To remain in kind of this position of like, Moral authority or moral righteousness uh, around how to deal with uh, all the violence.
1: Yeah, but I, I what think counts as anti-blackness real- in this? In- like, just, just pointing out the racial identity of a lot of the perpetrators.
2: I don't think. Okay,
0: like you don't even have to point to the the racial identity of the perpetrator, perpetrators. But well, why we're trying to find off? them,
1: though. That's the thing. Yeah, it's it's it- like <laughs> you, you kind of have to like when you when you're trying to find a suspect, you kind of have to describe them.
0: Sure, but uh, just, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to and sh- show them. And usually people
1: that- talk about race. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah. but like, is it a white male? Is it an Asian male? Is it a black male? How tall are they? What were they wearing? Yeah. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. But, but these these people aren't pretty, so just bear with me for a moment. Just be, I'm trying to show them a way they could do this if they were more genuine, in that you could just talk about the violence against uh, these victims and not even really mention um, the, the race of the, perp- uh, of the perpetrators, but also... Not mention anything about anti-blackness or being pro-police. Like, why is that having equal weight in the headline you're blaring right, that's out? My if big you're so problem. concerned, yeah, 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 it's like,
1: why did you it, lead it, with that before yeah, you even and, started and, the conversation?
0: And you're already either apologizing for something that that has not even been like proven or anything. There's there's no proof out there that Asian Americans are this, uh, I don't know, malevolent wave of pro-police anti-black people. In fact, if you look at the voting record of Asian-Americans as a group is nothing like that. And um, either you're apologizing for an advance or you actually don't care about this at all and, and you're just afraid what it'll do to your social image.
2: Yeah. Or to They're Asian social in a,
1: image in general. Yeah,
2: it yeah. feels like a bit of a bind, right? Where they have to speak out about the community because they are identifying as Asian-Americans and therefore they should say something. But they also don't want to come off as being, you know, as, as trying to like throw fuel in the fire with all the police uh, violence and so on so i see why they're like doing all this weird shit having these weird headlines and so on and not knowing how to talk about this constructively and a lot of it is bullshit too right like a lot of these fucking like infographics on the stories they ask for very vague things like you know community and unity and hope and whatever but that's not gonna fucking fix things like in the chinatowns where the violence is (laughs) happening right yeah it's Fucking annoying. Well, it's
1: like same way when they keep talking about white supremacy makes us do this to each other, and it's like, okay, white supremacy is to blame. I get it, but how does that help us on an individual level? How does that help us every single day when we have to go out there?
2: No, but they said at that point they said their piece. They got their points on social media and their their likes, and they're gonna you know peace out, right? At this point, I'm so sick of blaming white. But that's what bothers me too.
1: It's like if you don't care, then just don't say anything.
0: Yeah, at this point, I'm so sick of blaming everything on white supremacy. Not because I don't think it's actually true, but the way they frame it, white supremacy just is the the boogeyman for everything. A- anything that goes wrong, uh, I don't know. My, my like, uh, my food came out too cold. Oh, uh, white supremacy. And it just becomes <laughs> just this unsolvable like monster that you can you can blame everything on, and nothing gets solved because. Oh yeah, yeah, duh! It's white supremacy. We did. We already knew that. You're not some genius for pointing that out. Some right. of the capitalism people are like, "Oh, <laughs> right. we got dismantled Why we white think of patriarchal capitalism." <laughs> oh, gee, what what a brilliant insight! Give you a Nobel Prize for that. It's like, okay, we know that already. What are some doable steps that we can to achieve that? And if right, for how these do we people, protect
1: our own people?
0: Right, mm-hmm. and and if you can't even just say something online without you know shrouding it in all these like defensive uh, measures. Then uh, like yeah, you're gonna dismantle white supremacy. You can't even tweet out something without, you know, hundred caveats. So yeah,
2: that's really gonna work. Can I drop one positive thing maybe? So like I, I was asking some folks in, in one of these kind of chat groups about like, hey, what's a what's the actual like constructive positive thing we can do? Right? If you don't think we should be amping up, you know, police protection in Chinatown, what should actually happen? And one thing they suggested was like, and, and this is something that's happening in, in some spots uh, in California, is that they're putting together these like safety groups, so they actually get folks From the black community and from the Asian community to, you know, I don't know about like, being a vigilante squad protecting people in Chinatown, but like, being more present around places where these crimes happen, right, as a way to, uh, you know, provide some kind of protection in numbers, right, for the for the seniors who are there. So that sounds kind of productive, especially if you are reaching across, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, it almost sounds like the mafia. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little bit, right? But, like I mean, pretty soon, you...
1: they'll start charging for their services.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think it's constructive. But I also think that there's going to be some angry Asian liberals who are going to see that as like another roof Korean situation, right? Well, they're going to probably
0: quit. They're probably going to equate it to like uh, the militias out in the woods in
2: Michigan or something, and no, they're going to see that as their equivalent. <laughs> hey, and if they and, and if they want to do that, come up with a fucking better answer, okay? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I tweeted about this, but essentially,
0: there is a there's a gap in 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 class uh understanding here because i mean on one side the 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 class of asian Americans bearing the brunt of these attacks are not the class of asian Americans who are often chosen to speak speak out about this and and i i think it, there's you know far more than just you know evil scheming or whatever there's just the people who aren't out there like you know being very angry about this and instead you know saying things like we can talk about this without being anti-black i mean they're just prioritizing their interests above the safety of these people because their interest is not that they don't care about these victims i'm sure they feel very bad it reminds them of their parents or grandparents but their class interest the thing they want to preserve more is their good standing in their among their peers who are probably not asian um so that's the that's the that's the calculation they're making in their heads and you know what fine go ahead and do that but the problem is these people take up all the space in terms of Mm -hmm. who gets to talk for asian americans Mm -hmm. so their interests of i don't know being still welcome at dinner parties takes precedence over the lives of you
2: know elderly poor immigrant asians that's the bullshit that's what i mean by like if if they didn't want to like get in trouble for it they just wouldn't say anything they actually are saying something because they're trying to hold on to the mic right yeah Mm -hmm.
0: there's actually um uh a young asian man who was killed uh by the police yeah. and the cynical side of me sees this and be like i i bet the Asi- like the asian american activist types are kind of happy this happened because this is easy you can you can mourn asian life and you can vent against the police which is you know the safe thing to do in their crowd i mean and uh, he was liza, mentally
1: talk- ill too wasn't he oh mm-hmm. yeah
0: another bonus point and liza you talk about this uh a lot about why is vincent chin still held up like thirty years yeah. later as if he's like it's the only been, Asian guy. He, he
1: died. Who he was died. killed in nineteen eighty two and it's been thirty-eight mm-hmm. years. And every single time an Asian person is attacked in a hate crime, we don't even hear their name. We hear his name. Don't the like, don't the victims have names?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's because Vincent Chin has been ratified by American society as acceptable to mourn. His attackers, unsympathetic, a bunch of like uh unemployed, uh, you know, white guys in, in detroit or whatever um no messiness and and plenty of history has passed enough for him to be safe to mourn problem is the the asian americans who are, are killed nowadays you know i don't know you don't know maybe maybe they voted trump or maybe they hold certain beliefs about affirmative action you know the things that could get messy um so i think that's why they because vincent chin is safe
2: yeah he i did is- i didn't I did notice that uh, a lot of the folks who are victims here are Southeast Asian, actually not just East Asian. So um, I don't Thai, know, there's, there's Filipino, an angle there as well. Yeah, Vietnamese, or like
1: yeah. just um, working class in like Chinatown,
2: and and all working class. Yeah, like yeah, the, and- the fucking guy who has kids uh, uh, abducted. The people were fucking blaming him in the in the Twitter threads for like leaving. Like, why was he, you know, bringing his kids along with his like food delivery? He's a, he, he's a dad who's working fucking hard, and maybe he doesn't have like enough money to pay for care. And has to bring his yeah. kids with him, right? And these
0: are the same people who, you know, a- a- any other time would be admonishing East Asians for looking down on Southeast Asians who don't have, who supposedly don't have any of this uh, so called Asian privilege or whatever. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in times like this, everyone's just flattened. We saw that happen with To Tao in, um, in the George Floyd murder, where mm-hmm. he is a Hmong American, one of the most um, like impoverished ethnicities out there period and not just among Asian Americans Mm -hmm. yet because he you know looks yellow um, he just got saddled with Asian privilege uh, (laughs) in the greater discourse because as much as these people love uh, us you know standing up for Southeast Asians when they need to score points against their East Asian rivals as soon as there's wider public pressure they fold like cheap laundry
1: Asians are not a monolith unless non-Asians are watching us (laughs)
0: yeah right. then, then we're all the same from the you know the poorest monk to the and richest Asians are not like, a monolith
1: until it's inconvenient to not be a monolith yeah.
0: yeah anyway so we'll uh we'll keep talking about this um this wasn't the point of the episode so we don't want to take up too much time but yeah a lot of bullshit out there and, and don't be afraid to speak up i am encouraged i think more and more asian americans at least uh the kind of everyday asian americans you see online i think are becoming fed up with this obvious uh you know Political maneuvering. Well, it's about our, time. Yeah, but all right. Why don't we get to the topic at hand? Uh, White by Brad Easton Ellis. So, for pe- people don't know who is Brad Easton Ellis. Uh, who wants to introduce this guy?
1: He wrote American Psycho, and uh, his very first novel was published and became like a super blockbuster and adapted into a big movie with like Robert Downey Jr. when he was only a junior in college.
0: Yeah, so uh, that book, Less Than Zero, which I yeah. read, um, he wrote I it. Out, I think book. when he was eighteen, and then I think it came out when he was in college. He and Ellis wrote American Psycho when he was twenty-five or something. And mm-hmm. I just yeah. saw an interview in which he said that like, "I'm I'm going to be remembered for American Psycho, and I have no problems with that. I've, I I don't feel like I have to top that. But then what it makes me think: if you have peaked at like twenty-five with with your like literary magnum opus, I wonder how that feels for like the rest of your life. Where, or maybe that's kind of why he wrote this book. He's where
1: Still <laughs> a brilliant writer. I mean, when I uh-huh. when I read this book, I was there's there's like envy and admiration because I'm like, why I I think the same things. Why can't I write like this though?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing about this guy is that he's supposed to be like part of the literary what rap pack or something like yeah. that. Like what what is, can you explain she, like, what Jane that is? Like
1: McInerney and Donna Tart, uh, they all oh, apparently Donna Tartt, went I love. To, Yeah, Uh, they they were like friends in school, and then they all went on to become successful authors.
2: Just like around the same time with the same kind of vision? Is that the idea?
1: Uh, I don't think it's the same vision, but I mean, they are the same age, and like a lot of them went to school together. Okay. And then they were all living in New York around the same time, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that um, Ellis and Tart went to the same college, mm-hmm. Bennington. He is
1: probably the most notorious and famous of all of them, though. Like, I think that at this point, um, and, and probably for years, like, like like say 50 years down the line, I think he's going to be up there with, like, Nabokov and, um, like, Salman Rushdie, mm-hmm. just and, in terms of notoriety.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were called the literary Brad Pack because they, they were like popular, first became popular like in the 80s. And, you know, that's when like the, the actual Brad and they were Pack really young. was popular. They were young. They wrote about young people. Uh, and especially Ellis lived this very like hedonistic mm-hmm. lifestyle. Yeah. Um, they were I mean, he's all also real. Gay. They
1: partied a lot.
0: Yeah, he's also gay, so I'm sure there was like a lot of controversy just about that at the time because it was the 80s, the you know, all you know, culture was different back then. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> have you guys read Bright Lights, Big City, the Jay McInerney's big book? No. I read
1: that and Model Behavior,
0: okay. Um, and then from Jonathan
1: yeah, Tart, I read um, Secret History.
0: Oh, I love The Secret History, one of my favorite books. Um, yeah, as I said, uh, I I really like. Donatar. Even though that's the only book I read by her, I, I really should read the other two. Or the I think Goldfinch? Maybe three. Skip that one. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and I know she had one in between, but yeah, The Goldfinch and The Secret History are her two most famous books. I should get around to that. Um, but anyway, yeah, he, this was kind of back when, you know, a novelist was still kind of uh, an esteemed cultural figure, mm-hmm. uh, and you could be an actual literary celebrity which you know yeah, these people days,
1: read books like americans yeah. read books you don't have to come out with like harry potter or the da vinci code to get people to read
0: yeah well these days even like celebrities in general almost don't exist because everyone's just kind of flattened but yeah back then you could be like a jonathan franzen or mm-hmm. or a donna tart or a bright Easton alice that was a thing once upon a time so anyway um son Ellis guy who has been courting controversy all his life because uh, less than zero is about this like high schooler uh, he goes back home for like winter break he's like doing a lot of drugs and and, yeah. and all that the rules of attraction um which came out sometime after that is set in college kind of like similar themes I'll be totally honest including American psycho I don't like Ellis's novels that much they, to me they they're very weird kind of static.
2: Yeah. Uh like, I like, I love I to like hear...
1: these kinds of non moralistic books. I think that they're entertaining and I enjoy all the satire and I like the writing.
2: Yeah. Was well, that why the books were controversial, by the way? Because they were he- he- hedonistic and not you know non moralistic and so on. Yeah, it's especially American so, yeah. psycho. I mean we're talking about really graphic like descriptions this... of Af- uh huh. Well, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, that one in particular, right? <laughs> because of the violence. But yeah. was there oh, that level of about... violence in his other books too though?
0: Um. Well. Uh. Yeah. I. I think they were. Yeah. There is
1: some, but not as much as American time. Psycho.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um. But anyway, like I. Uh, I think Alice's books that they're they kind of they're kind of like one note. They they stay at the same level in that. Yeah. The, these characters are are horrible and and crazy, which you know I like, mm-hmm. but they kind of just remain that way, and and you don't really get to know them that much deeper. I feel. No, I think uh, you do so, get
1: to know them. I mean, R- Rules of Attraction is about. Um, it's about this gay, like closeted gay guy, kind kind of closeted. I don't know. He's pretty much okay with being gay, and he has a crush on a guy who doesn't know if he's gay or not. Um, you know, I, I kind of.
0: Yeah, but I, I just I, it was a while ago when I read. I just remember like, oh yeah, they have, dro- they do drugs, Less they have sex, they do drugs, is they have just sex. This
1: guy that comes back to LA, and it's like just as, uh, it's, it's a. A bunch of rich kids who participate in like the seedy underbelly of LA, and um, he's a bit <laughs> yeah. disgusted I mean, I, by it. But he also yeah. doesn't do anything to change it. He kind of just goes along with it anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, you the know, secret think history. Part, is part of the reason like that, but, with like th-
1: these people have like depraved lives, but like none of them hate their lives.
0: Yeah, I mean, the secret history Nor is like they that. Want I to prefer much, it. and I prefer it much more. I think you get more deeper into their psychology and stuff. But we're not here to do. Book reviews of those books. Well, we're here to talk about white. So, all right. So what is white about? So white is essentially his way of condemning contemporary uh, artistic sensibilities of being way too obsessed with morality, likability, relatability, as opposed to what he thinks art should be, which is, you know, just being art for its own sake, being focused on aesthetics, on on being honest and and all that. Um, So, yeah, what'd you guys think of the book?
1: It's 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 not a book about being a problematic white man, as I think a lot of people were led to believe based on the many reviews the about this book, <laughs> like the stupid, like BuzzFeed reviews. Um, mm-hmm. it's actually a book that, like you said, Chris, it explores the impact of the color the current cultural and political climate on art. It's um it debates aesthetics versus ideology. Uh I, I, I found it very interesting when I was you know we were talking brainstorming about topics for our podcast that this book is actually very much in line with this podcast Ideal ideology versus aesthetics one is mm-hmm. trumping the other in terms of reactions from the media and certain factions on the left and we used to look at the art not the artist but now we look at the artist more than we look at the art and that's a problem mhm mm-hmm. He Still, believes it's a problem. That's what the book is about.
2: Yeah. Uh, was this... Do you guys know if this is his first um, nonfiction book?
1: No, Maybe. because wasn't the... I'm not sure. Wait, that he wrote?
2: Yeah, that he mm. wrote. Because he, he's, so. he's written a lot of articles and stuff, right? Like, he, yeah, he's he's, he's um, written a
1: lot of stuff that's... Um, he's, he's not that prolific of a novelist. Um, yeah. Or even just and, like putting out books, so...
2: Yeah, it's the first you nonfiction that, like,
1: book that's been published,
2: right? And Chris, you had you had mentioned that he uh, doesn't has not given a lot of interviews um, throughout his career. Right? Yeah,
0: and I found that interesting in that he says he purposely says in the book that in between like book tours, when he writes a new book, he purposely stays away from interviews, mm-hmm. partially because he wants to preserve a sense of mystique because mm-hmm. people wonder like what does a writer do when they're not publishing or you know, in in the spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whereas these days, you see a lot of authors just like on Twitter all day Mm -hmm, uh, and it mm -hmm. does destroy their image. I think very few Mm -hmm. famous people, because we hold famous people up in in such high esteem, very few famous people can come out uh, like net positive after reading (laughs) on Twitter (laughs) because it's kind of like that old saying, you know, better to be thought an idiot than, you know, to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yeah. I think a lot of celebrities go through that in that, hey, you're kind of either lame boring or stupid uh, yeah. and I think he's very right to, to kind of stay away from it
2: so so I asked those two questions about like his history around giving away things that are not just like his art his his novels because I felt like this book was like him kind of unleashing all his thoughts on like all that stuff that has happened to throughout his career um, a lot of it is about Twitter right it feels like almost half of the book is about um, things that happened because of like Twitter blow-ups some things he said and then the other piece is around like you know reactions to his novels, his most famous ones, um, you know, movie, movie versions of his books and what he thought had gone wrong, that he didn't really get a chance to say until now. And he kind of like let let it loose on one book. But on top of that, wrap this kind of conversation around the current like milieu of culture and the current zeitgeist we're in where, you know, ID Paul has taken over uh, and all the stuff you said about, you know, the artist preceding the art Uh, which i thought was great i didn't necessarily agree with every point he made like he said some things that i thought was kind of troubling and i see why he's so controversial but uh yeah he really does cover a lot of those themes we have around like hey like you know what is going on with this current generation of creators why are we putting ourselves out there in a certain way yeah Um, Uh, uh, philip just to address your question yes mm white is the
0: first and only nonfiction book he's written okay and um I wonder if he wrote this book because, as he said, he acknowledges that he peaked in his like twenties with mm-hmm. his novels. And in the book, he also talks about how he thinks he's kind of fed up with the novel as an art form. He thinks he's maxed out on that. So I do wonder if his tweeting is what he thinks is what he has left. Because <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe maybe he doesn't tweet that
1: right? much. Like, so I follow him.
2: Yeah, he he. Well, he doesn't tweet that much, but he also in a, in a book kind of writes off his tweets as like these are just some like rambling. Sometimes I troll yeah. a little bit in 140 just, characters at a time, and there's no nuance in it. And this I think book that is sort of he's like-, just
1: like I mean, he talks about being a prankster. I think he's just like he's like exploring um, freedom of speech in the digital era when he does stuff like that.
0: Yeah, because he also he's talks always about
1: fascinated by the other people who are so famous for being like online, you know, kind of trolls like Trump and Kanye.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think the book's weakest when he likes talking about, you know, Kanye. I mean, I, I, towards the end, he's like <laughs> talking so much about Kanye. I'm like, I, I don't care. Like, I don't even like Kanye. I don't know why he talks oh, so much I about him. Oh, I thought that but was so
1: interesting because I, I'm a big yeah, Kanye think, fan.
0: Yeah, I think and I, you I'm are a Kanye I find fan. Find him, I find
1: his, um, I find the artist and the art equally fascinating when it comes to Kanye. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right, let, let's talk about that because that's one of the most interesting things he talks about because he starts out by talking, because he did, uh, You know, back in the day, you know, interviews with actors, you know, most famously starting with Judd Nelson, you know, that guy Uh from the 80s. And he talks about actors as being kind of pathologically obsessed with likability because that's their job. Mm -hmm. And, And he talks about these days where, you know, he'll on his podcast, he'll have famous actors on. Whom in private they will say like some of they're very interesting people with lots of opinions and all that, but they need to come apart and everyone just becomes this bland uh, kind of like a <laughs> corporate PR person where everyone's great, everyone's awesome. They just have to awesome. promote their
1: newest um, project. Or yeah. even if they don't have
0: that, I think they just want to make sure that you know all the bridges are intact. Um, you know, if like Molly <laughs> mm-hmm. Ringwald comes on a show, she's not going to talk shit about like John Hughes for and stuff he did in the '80s. And um, I mean. Going to a larger point, he talks about how art as a whole these days is all about being didactic. I mean, he he brings up dear white people, which we can get more into as a specific example. But instead of being, I don't know, uh, concerned with like truth or beauty, they're more concerned with being likable, being relatable, which is which is the big thing. And yeah, so let let's go off on that.
1: So a lot of times when I was reading his book, I would replace. Anytime he said, um, like, gay, for example, because he really talks about his, he, he really talks about being like a gay man. Anytime, um, every time he said gay, I would replace it with like Asian American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like everything, <laughs> everything fits. I, I think that that, that like desperation for relatability and likability is what's holding back any kind of progress for Asian Americans more than anything else. Like, why do we have to be relatable? Why do we have to be likable? It just leads to either more assimilation bullshit and erasure of culture, but also on the individual basis, it just leads to the erasure of self. And like, we're barely even seen as like people anyway. Mm -hmm. It's like, suddenly we have to like adopt the, the, uh, the popular ideology of the moment to be likable and relatable. Well, what if we don't want to? You know, I saw that, like, Brett Easton Ellis is, he's going to be most famous for American Psycho. Let's just go with it. And, like, Patrick Bateman was Brett Easton Ellis's way of fighting back against that oppressiveness of relatability. Mm -hmm. Um, What I mean by that is, like, (sighs) all right, this is going to sound really funny because it's going to be. All right, let's have it. -Aren't we all a little bit like Patrick Bateman? You know like- <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's why he's
0: endured. That's why he's <laughs> like, become like such an iconic character someone With this said it.
1: novel and it's like it's it's so famous, it's so infamous and famous. And it's mm-hmm. like maybe it's because all of us see a little bit of ourselves in Patrick Bateman. I mean, like, um, I don't mean the raging misogynist, racist serial killer part. um hopefully this is like patrick bateman is a guy who is navigating a world where he has to be likable he has to conform on the outside and he's absolutely right about the world that he has to move through we all do the same thing like just speaking for the people on this podcast we all went to the right private schools We went to the right universities. We all majored in things that are appropriate for our families and they maintain our family's class status. And then we were at, you know, we were all forced to embody a persona that maybe some of us didn't fully want. And like Patrick Bateman just cracks and 99% of us will never crack. We just went ahead and we (laughs) survived it. And I think that's what's fascinating about American Psycho. Like the guy just completely loses it and every single dark instinct and tendency is like, explored like to the max all the way like so i think the patrick that... bateman patrick bateman was brett's way of expressing his personal pain and accepting like fame and adulthood in the 80s you know that's this is this is when he peaked he was 25 he was already famous at a very young age so much was expected of him
0: mm-hmm all right. I, I want to reframe this just a little bit because uh, he he talks about this in generational terms as well. He talks a lot about growing up in California, pretty much unsupervised, mm-hmm. and how that uh, he thought was helpful in him just learning to deal with the complexities of the world, dealing with independence, disappointment, et cetera. And he talks about how for millennials, uh, it, it was a generation that was much more helicopter parented, more coddled. And he, he I think one of his theories is that this is why uh we're so uh ups- we're so fragile in the sense that w- we want to we're afraid of the american psychos in our art we want everything to be uh, reflective of totally of our experiences to reaffirm our experiences don't not challenge us or disgust us or frighten us in any way so what do you guys think of that
2: i think there's i think there's truth in that i i, I isn't this book was interesting to read because like he finally, someone kind of put it, and maybe someone else has done this before, but I haven't seen it in like a popular book, but like put these concerns about like millennial upbringings and related it back to art, right? Like I think mm-hmm. the yeah. stuff he was saying about millennials being caught up, that's not new. Like we've read a hundred fucking articles from like New York Times yeah, and BuzzFeed so at this point, about yeah. that, right? But he's actually saying like, this is why it is producing the kind of stuff we're seeing today, like in social media, in art, in, you know, even just how we behave after, let's say a certain president gets elected, right? Um, and so I, I, I do agree with that. I, I do think it's interesting to actually like see it and read it, uh, on paper, uh, for once, right. As opposed to like people be failing to kind of connect the dots, right. To, to that point.
1: Yeah. Um, as an older millennial, um, I pretty much missed out on the whole concerted cultivation of childhood. Like there were a few kids at school whose parents were early adopters of that kind of, um, helicopter parenting that like defines the millennial generation, you know, the overscheduling, the raising of just like a walking resume, the obsession with transcripts and enrichment and like college admissions. My parents were pretty I mean pretty much like just uh, not as permissive as his parents cuz I didn't grow up in the 70s, but permissive about what I consumed and like him, I grew up watching whatever adults whatever the whatever movies the adults picked out. And I think that like Something that he says that really interested me is like he talks about being 10 years old and walking to the movie theater by himself to watch um, this Brian De Palma movie. Meanwhile, kids of the same age today, they watch shit like Frozen. And Mm -hmm. yeah, he connects the dots. It's like why directors who were informed by that era are so much – they're making better shit than what young directors are making today.
0: Yeah, I mean, same with me. My parents were pretty hands off mm-hmm. uh, because I think a they, you know, I, I was pretty self motivated. So there was no real reason to overschedule me. Like I, I would, if anything, and like, you're smack do it by in the myself. middle of
1: the millennial generation, right?
0: Yeah, I, I would. Say, yeah, I'm a skew on the older end, but I'm like right in the middle, I think. And and secondly, I think they just were kind of clueless they didn't really know well in you know Canadian society they didn't really know how to go through it so they were like okay you know let's just trust Chris to, to do what he wants he you know he's getting like straight A's so he seems to know what he's doing so i, I do kind of myself lucky in that sense because i do think that i don't know sometimes i hear about you know kids who like i talk to my mom or, or dad every day and you know we we you know we get under the blankets and watch movies together i'm like that's kind of weird i don't know just, isn't there some kind of healthy separation when you get an uh, adult age and i do wonder if that that you know bleeds over to just an inability to to handle any kind of like subtlety or or complexity or non-literalness of uh in in our art uh, something he brings up with like dear white people he i think he rightfully points out that everything in that show is just like on the nose and um <laughs> uh, philip did you watch dear white People? i did not on no Netflix? i did not okay no. so Liza I had the same turn in that I love season one and, and Liza, did you, you did too when you first saw it?
1: Uh, when I watched season one, it was, uh, it was right around the time that it was released and it was getting like rave reviews and everybody was talking about it in like my social circles and people that I followed online. And so I checked out a few episodes and I was like, wow, this is like groundbreaking. And then season two comes out and I watch it later. Um, I didn't watch all of both seasons. I think I only caught a few episodes Um I did watch the Hotep episode in season two, which was so (laughs) bad. And then, yeah, um, I kind of wish that – we're going to put the clip of Brett Easton Ellis talking about Dear White People and the Rotten Tomatoes discrepancy between the critic score and the audience score in the show notes, but – it's a six minute clip it's not long to watch but like when I watched that clip of him assessing the show I was like yeah I this the show doesn't really change much from season one to season two it's I changed
0: yeah mm. I, I always wonder did the show change or did I and I think I did because I, I feel like yeah what but okay to lay a scene uh for Philip and for people who have not uh watched it I think the Hotep episode will, is the perfect embodiment of this like over earnest literalness and you know just like this twitter ideology uh so the whole the whole show is about jolene who's one of the side uh, characters and she is um kind of always the second banana to the to her best friend she's the dark
1: skin one and samantha the lead character is um
0: biracial mm light-skinned like more conventionally attractive light
1: eyes yeah
0: yeah, so Jolene always kind of feels like she's she's you know in the shadows, but then she meets this great guy, uh, this black guy who also looks like James Harden. I that, I found that very <laughs> distracting, and uh, you know they hit it off. He's like he's you know he's smart. He's he's you know takes her to like cool places. But then throughout the episode, he starts saying things that are like a little too kind of like black nationalistic like the black equivalent of someone who's like too pro-asian okay. but she's she's enamored with this guy so she misses all these signs and then in the end it turns out he's uh, a hotep in that he's a misogynist he's a uh, anti-lgbtq he's against uh you know uh interracial relationships and it's all topped off by him um calling uh, someone the, the f word you know uh Another term for gay, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but uh, he says that um, and uh, he gets decked by one of the the main male characters, which also is like, and he doesn't even fight back. So why are we even scared of this guy? Like he's this <laughs> big guy, uh, but he, he can't even like fight back. And he's just like calling people names. And it was just such an agenda behind this episode, because if you ever follow, you know, black Twitter, mm-hmm. and it seemed like they were trying to introduce this idea of the hotel to white audiences, and they were trying to slant it as much as possible. Uh, and it was Remember just like, come outfits? on now. Yeah. And, you know, if you ever seen the memes of the, I don't know what you call it. It's like that, that like African hat they, they put on uh, any, any, you know, supposed hotel. He's basically wearing that uh, in the, in the show uh, figuratively. And it was just so clumsy. There was nothing nuanced about it. Like, why is he? Why is he like this? Like, where is he coming from? None of that. It's just like, this guy is bad. And if you like him, you're bad too. So you shouldn't like him because you shouldn't want to be bad. And
1: this is just fucking, (laughs) it sounds like like a TV show where like, childish.
2: Yeah, it sounds sounds like a uh, a TV episode where like you have some shows where like each episode is like a lesson or something. Yeah, exactly. And like, this is like the lesson. Yeah, or like (laughs) Blossom
1: or something.
2: So was that what Ellis was kind of complaining about with respect to?
1: Yes you think like
2: he was saying like it it, it felt too much like everything is like let's educate these people on what we think are problems in our community and so (laughs) on and so forth yeah
0: and and his whole point is that art is now focused very much on the present and trying to be teachers for the Mm -hmm. present and Mm -hmm. i'm not saying that art shouldn't teach lessons but the problem is Mm -hmm. i don't think we're very good as a society in knowing what like uh the lessons to take from our like any given era is so the best i think we can do is if, if you're like a true artist just put out there what you sincerely believe is is true and expresses your you know emotions and experience and and be as as, as brutal as as you want to be um but don't pander to the crowd because you don't know what, how the sands <laughs> will shift and often i think that is why uh even like looking back at 2018 uh, i think this book came out in 2018 no so it came out the
1: beginning of 2019
0: Okay, but uh, like the book is very obsessed with twenty eighteen as the year, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's because that was the, I think the height of Tw- yeah twenty eighteen the, the
1: was the pinnacle of like woke culture and um, yeah the resistance and like even I was like. I was somewhat of a neoliberal SJW shithead in no, 2018. No, we, we all were.
0: Yeah, I think we all like, were. I,
1: it's like embarrassing. If I go back and look at my tweets or like my blog posts from 2017, 2018, it's like it's embarrassing. But I keep <laughs> them up just to remind myself.
2: Do you think yeah. it's because you know? that was uh, the the year the midterms where the uh, Democrats took back the House, and so it felt like there was momentum against Trump and all the bad shit he stood for? Like, was I that- think
1: people were still like still convinced that Trump was going to become like Hitler? You know.
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: I think, you know, by 2018, you've had essentially a year to ruminate over his election. So I think 2017 mm-hmm. was, it was you know, in in the stage of, you know, grieving or whatever. It was like <laughs> when everyone's was kind of dazed and catatonic, like, oh, what the hell happened? And 2018 was like the, the anger phase. We're like, no, we're going to fight back. And I think that, that was the height of it. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that it was the the, the peak of like, Uh, media representation talks when it comes to asian americans asian Mm -hmm. Um,
1: august was in 2018 too yeah that bullshit Mm -hmm. that embarrassing Uh, month
0: (laughs) yeah so uh so he is fixated on that year and uh, and all the stuff that came out most of it is going to age very badly because it was so fixated on the moment yeah and it was trying to teach to the moment and you don't even know what the moment is i mean that's why people reacted so badly to that news that Netflix already making a GameStop movie. <laughs> and I know I know some people are gonna be like, Well, did you know that you know Casablanca was made in the middle of World War II? Like, sure, yeah, but Casablanca is propaganda. And secondly, there's like a hundred more failures to every Casablanca. Is, so um,
1: was Me Too 2017 or 2018? I think
0: both. I think it, it kind of started in 2017. Right, it was it the peaked. very beginning. I th- yeah, I, I think I think those two years. I think because it's safe it was to say. before
1: the Oscars.
0: Yeah, like yeah, definitely. Because like I remember the time's up. What was the new thing? Was kind of they were all wearing
1: that pin on the red carpet, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah. This Mm -hmm. this book, like when this came out, and I read it like the week that it was released, um, I was just very excited that there was a new Bret Easton Ellis book. So I put it on hold for myself at the library, and then this book was like a watershed moment for me when I read it because we had just come off of 2018. I was a neoliberal SJW shithead who was like kind of recovering (laughs) by that point, and like. By 2019, when the book came out, wokeness was starting to become something else, like something just as um, exclusionary as what it originally claimed to be fighting against. And Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. resistance was just starting to be mocked because what the hell were they resisting? You know, liberal (laughs) elites, they already dominated media, culture, business, politics, tech. What What were they resisting? Themselves. And like at this mm-hmm. point, it was like three years into his presidency, Trump already proved that he wasn't a threat, and some of us were just coming to the terms with the fact that he, we weren't, we just weren't really afraid of him. We weren't offended by him. It's or just or he didn't do long- anything.
2: He didn't do anything materially bad for your community, right?
1: Right? <laughs> right? You live in <laughs>
2: fucking New York City. Like nothing bad's happening. You know, it,
1: it was just a four-year-long reality TV show, and that was it. So. When I first read it, I had never really seen identity politics and cancel culture or the resistance criticized by anyone other than like Fox News, like right wingers. So I didn't pay attention to them. But when I saw Brett Easton Ellis do it, um, I don't know what his politics are. As far as I know, he's a he's a non-voter like most people I hang out with these days, but left leaning Mm -hmm. and like white was basically his very long philosophical essay about. The current cultural, social, and political climate, and just how much he was against political correctness and why, and I, mm-hmm. I thought it was very clever. Like my, um, it's a, it's a book that really marked the turning point of my views on representation and like ID politics and over the top hatred for anyone that just wasn't an overreaching cultural anti-Trump liberal. Like I, I loved this book when because it's actually not that political at all. This is, this is a book that is about, um, freedom of speech, no matter what, and artistic freedom. You know, his biggest issue isn't right wingers or left wingers or, or politics or Trump. It's censorship that that's what he sees as the enemy. And that's what he sees as the result of that, like 20 of 2018, that pinnacle of wokeness. And, um, and like the yeah. resistance uh, co- corporate censorship was the big winner
0: yeah i mean it's a very personal book i mean it starts off with his childhood ends up with you know him hanging out with kanye and it, it's and he's a relevant sp- spokesperson for this because he has been mired in controversy since he's like 18 uh, mm-hmm. or whenever you know less than zero first came out so he's a veteran of this so he he knows He's been through like the '80s version of this, the '90s version of this, the 2000s, and then the 2010s. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about this being the worst version of all, and I mean, he thought he does talk a lot about Trump. Uh, you know, Trump is a huge figure in American psycho. I don't know if he's mentioned that much in the book, but I mean, 43 in the movie, but in the book, Patrick he's worships, not
1: mentioned at all in the movie.
0: Yeah, so Patrick Bateman worships Donald Trump. So Brady Sinel is somebody who knew Donald Trump was a kind of an American psycho back when he wrote this book in the 80s. Yet, if you read White, it's not that he's sympathetic to Trump or Trump voters, but he is very critical of the rich uh, elite liberals who were so traumatized by Trump, even though they were materially perhaps even better off. So it's like, why are you more hysterical about Trump? Uh, uh, you know, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: more than like the DACA people who uh, are th- being threatened with deportation or, or you know, like whatever, the actual people who will be hurt by Trump. These people whose main uh, victimization by Trump is purely psychological, like what the hell is going on here? Mm-hmm. It's an
1: aesthetic issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. and Because it's-, it's like they
1: don't have a problem with Mitt Romney, someone that embodies pretty much like the same same thing or anyone else that's a republican or like a corporate democrat like they're all the same it's just it's it's him
0: yeah it's it's like in the in the fairy tale in the in their head that that they've lived by all their lives like the the mean people like donald trump aren't supposed to win and the fact that he did win and not only that he won but he won against hillary clinton who was for many of them basically their avatar in in the political arena That's what destroyed them. It really wasn't that, you know, they would say something like, oh, he's going to start World War III or he's going to destroy the environment. That wasn't really what they were upset about. (laughs) They were upset that their fable was ruined. And the, you know, the the thing that they wanted to
2: live by was totally disproved. It's kind of crazy because like he has a pretty pragmatic response to all that. He says like, find a better candidate, like actually go out and do something and don't just like post hashtag resistance on Twitter. Yeah. Right. Which, which also, is way more pragmatic than like people who he's critiquing who are supposedly much more political than he is, you know, like identify yeah. as being policy like uh, uh, nerds or whatever.
1: And that's why he calls them generation wuss.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's also notable that he also called Bernie Sanders pie in the sky. And he, he mm-hmm. said his platform was laughably like unrealistic. So, mm-hmm. I mean, Ellis, his politics are, he is are apolitical. very political.
1: He's apolitical. He cares more what? about culture. I, w- I would say he's
0: very political but he he's not like electorally feasible in that he's so all over the place there is there's probably no candidate ever possible that would please Well he him, said he never voted. Um yeah, or or he might have voted in the past but I, definitely not in the last election. He vote, he didn't vote. Um oh returning to the whole like childhood thing he quotes Joan Didion uh, which I found very interesting because uh Didion said that essentially um it was, she was critiquing feminism at the time. I think this was like in the 80s. She said that femi- feminism was concerned with uh, staying, uh, staying children for as long as possible because these were adults who grew up, did not like adulthood and its cruelties, and decided to find an ideology that would permit them to be children all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, taking that away from feminism, I'm not sure what I have to say about that. I do think that is true with culture in general these days, this worship of childhood dumb we see it in obviously like the the worship of Harry Potter and, the, and you you saw the hysteria over the new live action series coming out all these people are like oh my god i can't enjoy this cuz you know jk rowling's a turf and like you should be upset <laughs> you should be upset that this is being made Not because of what Rowling believes or not, but the fact that it's been like 20 years since like the last Harry Potter book and yet they're still milking this franchise. There's eight movies already. Now it's fucking 40 year olds who refuse to grow up having read a book (laughs) at a higher reading level than like sixth grade. That's what you should be upset about. Not what this one individual woman believes or doesn't believe. Like who cares about that?
1: Since you brought up Joan Didion, um, the book White is actually a reference to the White Album, right?
0: i think so he says that in his acknowledgements right or it's got nothing to do with
1: like uh being a white male it's actually Mm. just a reference to her
0: yeah i I think it's a it's a double entendre because in the cover it says things like white privilege white male white all that but i think it's it's also i mean
2: he he understands to
1: like derange liberals yeah, he knows it's going like to sell. Well, he, he's white.
2: he's even said this about like movies that he's made and how it was kind of warped to to sell better. Like he's he's kind of a master in this crap he's been doing for decades, right? Mhm. Mm-hmm. Though mm-hmm. it is a disservice to the art, if you ask me, right to to make it feel like it's about. And he does go into a little bit about being a, a white man in the final chapter, but it's not really the entirety of the book, right? The entirety of the book is mostly this cultural critique. Yeah.
1: Right, aesthetics versus ideology. It, yeah. It's a topic I'll never get sick of.
0: Yeah. And uh, with this whole childhood thing, I mean, we see this a lot with Asian American stuff where, you know, people are obsessed with romantic comedies or, you know, <laughs> ev- even even the good, uh, you know, the good, you know, I guess, high art of Asian American stuff, like like Mirari, which we'll ha- probably do a part about later, is, is again, like obsessed with like childhood and mm-hmm. just exploring what, you know. Right, the whole movie the is weepiness. told through the
1: point of view of the little boy.
0: Yeah, and... I'm just uh, just really want to see like like an Asian American version of American Psycho. What would that look like? What would an Asian American parasite look like? I'm always I'm becoming much much more curious about this, and I wonder if we are as a community even capable of doing that because I think we're so fragile. All our art is essentially geared towards boosting our self esteem, and that is I think goes hand in hand with Ellis' critique of culture being obsessed with likability, relatability. It's also all about boosting self-esteem. Like, we felt bad that we weren't cool when we were kids. We felt bad about this and that. We want our shows and movies and books to, you know, fill in those gaps. And I think it's good if you can, if you are made stronger by reading a a book or film or whatever, but that doesn't always come because it coddles. Often, I think it comes when it's actually harsh and makes you really examine yourself. But I think a lot of people just don't want to do that these days. They're just, they're... You know, I've I've seen uh, you know submissions for like writing contests where people will these are adults these are fucking adults be like no mean people in in your stories like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking <laughs> about what do you think the world consists of you know he talks yeah.
1: about so he talks about like um, how much he hates gay martyr movies like Moonlight um, and it's it, it, the way he feels about it is so identical to how I feel about Asian American representation in movies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, just switch out the whole thing for Asian, and it's is like, it vi- yeah, is it it's the like,
2: victimhood thing? Or it's like, you're c- yes, constantly. Yes. It's like, why
1: do we need so many? Why why, do, why is it that to be likable, you have to be a victim always? Why do you have to suffer to be likable? Why do you have yes. to be likable? Before we get to
0: that lightning round, uh, I want to ask both of you what movie is better, Moonlight or La La Land?
2: I have not seen either, so I don't have an opinion. What?
0: What's wrong with you? <laughs>
2: not. I'm just not. Lala La Land just has like this aesthetic to it that I'm just not interested in viewing whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Liza.
1: Um, I mean, between the two of them. Yeah. Moonlight. Oh yeah. I'll be honest. I mean, um, it is Why? like Barry. Why? Je- uh, well, uh, I would say Barry Jenkins. Um, uh. You take, away, you, you take away the ideology of the movie and Barry Jenkins still made a very beautiful movie with good acting.
2: Mm-hmm. So aesthetically, it's, it's good, right? Aside Aesthetically, from the- it's
1: good. He, he, is, he is a competent artist. Yes, he's a, he's a good mm-hmm. artist. You know, I've always wondered, though, why Barry Jenkins, who's a straight guy, why he was not attacked by the SJW cultural appropriation crowd for directing a movie about a gay man.
0: I, I, know the, I think I know the answer to that. You know what <laughs> movie also came out that year? The Birth of a Nation by Nate Parker. And I remember Moonlight being held up as like the antidote to The Birth of a Nation because that movie was directed and stars Nate Parker, who um, I think even if he didn't have the whole uh, campus rape charge against him, That I was think 17 he still
1: years ago and he was acquitted.
0: Uh, I mean, you're sure, but, you know, acquitted, what does that mean? I don't want to get into the, <sighs> the realities of that, but let's assume that that actually uh, did not even uh, exist, like, uh, not even the allegation.
1: Well, because see, that, he, see, that bothers, but no, 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 I don't want to because that bothers me. It's like, what only perfect people, only, like, <laughs> only saints are allowed uh, to make movies. He was yeah, acquitted. Okay, but,
0: but stay with me here. Stay with me here. Fine, fine, um, fine, fine, l- fine. Let's say he didn't have that. He was like relatively squeaky clean. He is still the guy who, in interviews before, said things like uh, he thinks that Hollywood's holding down the, the straight black man by putting him in dresses and and making him gay. You know, the gay black male best friend type of thing. So he's already he's already kind of like in the red uh, with these people because he said stuff like that. <laughs> so- Add in the the rape charge. Add in also the fact that um the the Birth of a Nation is it, a very like masculine movie in that it's about a slave. Uprising. I don't think there were any, you know, much female characters of note. I think Gabriel Union is in it, but I think she like dies sooner or something. It's all about like angry men fighting other angry men. So and it got a lot of praise at at uh, Cannes or, or some, some festival until the rape stuff coming out. And then suddenly all these, and this is how you know that the Rotten Critics, I'm not Rotten. Well, they are Rotten Critics, but Rotten Tomatoes, all that stuff is bullshit because it got a standing ovation, got a record by when it screened and then suddenly the politics of, of the creator were not so good and then everyone ditched the movie and they were like, oh yeah, this movie actually right, sucks. Right, so those <laughs>
1: early reviews that were like, those early reviews that were nothing but like, oh, just so much praise and everything. Um, later on, when the movie was screened for the Academy, um, only like 25 people showed up for the screening and also people talked about the artistry where it was just like a very lackluster spectacle. So it's like, Oh, so now you're gonna judge it yeah, by, it's, it's, by its aesthetics? Wait, so, so, so Suddenly, you're now actually, he's not that competent of a director. He's not really that great of an artist. Probably a better actor than he is artist. Are
2: you are you saying that after the first wave of critical, you know, um, acclaim, acclaim that some shit was unearthed at that point, and then they changed their minds? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Because yeah. the birth of a nation was supposed to be
0: what Moonlight became. It was supposed mm-hmm. to be the great black movie um I, I don't know if that was like before or after black panther but black panther everyone knew was it, it despite best picture i nomination, think that black it's, panther it's was
1: 2018 <laughs> yeah. i don't well, know no, what we, year moonlight and la la land were wait i think which, it was the year before it, i
0: think it might have been year the year before, before. okay uh, so
1: the the year that la la land and moonlight um were competing for best picture my, my pick for best picture that year was arrival
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Arrival's mm-hmm. great, better than both of them by far. Uh, I I don't really like either La La Land or Moonlight. Although my gut says I, I well, you I asked think me if I like, if La La I like La Moonlight
1: more. or La La Land better. That's the only reason I picked Moonlight. Well, I yeah, because because I I wanted to know. It's not my favorite I, movie <laughs> of the year. It's <laughs> oh, just yeah, no, between no. the two I, of them.
0: Yeah, but I, I wanted to know head to head what your thoughts were. But going back to The Birth of a Nation, so they, they needed like the great black movie that year, uh, which was supposed to be The Birth of a Nation, but then that was uh you know a train wreck. So then I remember listening to, I don't know, for whatever reason, I, I, maybe back then I was still a shithead, so I was still listening to like NPR podcasts and stuff. But people were like, do you know about this movie, Moonlight, uh, by this guy, Barry Jenkins? And Barry Jenkins was kind of a nobody at that point, uh, at least to mainstream audiences. But, I mean, he also did this thing where he was very ambiguous about sexuality because, I mean, um, you know, not, not to be too crass, but he, he kind of like looks gay in in the sense that he's he looks like a you know nice, quiet, black man has like those wireframe glasses and you know if, Isn't if he
1: married if, to some asian lady i,
0: I, I maybe I, maybe they're dating or whatever is but it
1: lulu I, lulu wang is that who he's married um, to
0: may, maybe i uh, maybe um but he he did play it off as he, he could at least be bi- bisexual he wasn't like a nate parker nate parker was just like so just like macho and and that was kind of like one of the reasons why there was a target on his back mm-hmm. um so th- that's why moonlight i, I think uh, because also because it was trump and they, they wanted to put a middle finger up to him uh but also they their the, the movie i think that was supposed to do that uh the birth of a nation was so became so toxic that uh they, moonlight they couldn't which, it use just it, it as their there. sjw
1: yeah. movie
0: uh yeah or their so,
1: black uh, lives uh, matter but, movie
2: yeah from so, my recollection of that year that was one of the big reasons. So, so let's assume your your theory here is true. How do you think this kind of thing happens? Like it's not like there's a council of elders who makes a decision to like suddenly put all your money into Moonlight stock, right? It's just like a subconscious upswell of support because they, they felt like they needed, you know, a black movie to succeed that year. Is that is that how it would play out? Because well, we everyone, know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, go ahead, finish it. No, just because everyone like kind of has this understanding that this has to happen?
1: I think well, so we know in twenty eighteen, coordinate- definitely.
0: Well, we know these people coordinate their efforts and like we talked about in the last episode with something like the last jedi how after yeah. you learn about the behind the scenes stuff you understand why so much of the critics seem to be moving in concert with each other there i'm sure there are like chat rooms and and dm groups in mm-hmm. which people do hash these things out
2: yeah yeah i think it, it all plays back to ellis's point about like this is this is the way the culture is moving all the decision makers are moving that decision as well right for that that um direction as well,
1: well what- what if Nate Parker's movie really was as beautiful as Moonlight, though? Would it have See, survived? Would it have survived that kind of um, all the controversy that swirled around Nate Parker at the time? If he actually made the, a good movie,
0: that's the most interesting hypothetical. That I don't know ha- like, if what has if the happened art actually
1: yet? did hold up. You know,
0: I think the close example is Joker, in which um, yeah, you might not say the it's like high art, up, but it yeah. was definitely. <laughs> definitely a solid movie definitely not mm-hmm. as bad as critics wanted it to be the problem yeah. with something like birth of a nation which i've never seen and you know i don't, I don't have any interest i think it was kind of bad that and so it became easy uh but then it just highlights well why did it why did it have a standing ovation it can like what the hell were you doing you know if it sucks like what changed i mean we know what changed but in mm-hmm. terms of pure art well, well, no one really like a, liked the movie
1: is what it was the art wasn't yeah, strong like, enough well,
0: was there a bad cut that, that made it up? I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Like Joker, that the movie was strong enough and the, the acting was strong enough that it can survive all the controversy and all the concerted efforts to bring the movie down or like boycott it or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So here's another interesting quote by Ellis in his book. He says, uh, or this is not him saying it. He's actually quoting, I think his black like, millennial friend or boyfriend uh, who said this. Any young artist who goes on Tumblr doesn't want to create art only to steal the art or be the art.
1: Be the art, was, definitely.
2: Which is, yeah. I think, quite interesting. I don't know what the steal the art part was about. Like, is he, uh, what was he saying there? Because people were just replicating because the it's same it's like ship.
1: reposting, you know?
2: Yeah, and then, and like then it's like you
1: you add like your little commentary to the repost kind of like oh, on Twitter, yeah, yeah. and then you get you okay. rake in the light. So he's
2: talking about the mechanics of of how Tumblr works. Like, okay, I, I yeah. hear that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or, or something mm-hmm.
0: like uh, Instagram. If you ever seen uh, like the American Meme, a documentary like that, it, it you know portrays people like the fat Jewish who who is a guy who pretty much just steals, a uh, memes and jokes. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's built up pretty big business empire based on that. And a lot of people <laughs> are pissed off about him. Or comedians who, you know, are notorious for stealing jokes on Twitter. Mm-hmm. All that stuff.
1: I agree mostly with the be the art part. Like, I think mm-hmm. that social media has ruined so much of art where, yeah, people want to be the art. People want to be, like, this perfect being that, like, no one's perfect. You know, art is... Um, Art's made by artists who are problematic and they're selfish and they're obsessed. It's not supposed to be made by the audience, which is the direction it's headed in now. And certainly it doesn't make you an artist that something that you stole or posted just gets like retweeted 8 million times or shared a million times. That doesn't make you an artist.
0: I mean, people have always... You have to
1: create something.
0: Yeah, uh, art is hard work. It's often on glamorous. It's, it's grinding uh, and all that. So people have always wanted to be an artist more than doing the art. That's not that's not new. That's like an age-old thing. But I do think this heightens it, especially when... Uh, I mean, uh, elsewhere in the book, he says something like how uh, people these days, they're they're curators. They're not artists. They're, their job is to collect things mm-hmm. that have already been made and pres- present, them, f- present them for consumption to the audience or... Ah, uh, just be a conduit for the audience and and give them what they want,
1: and then um, see their clout at, go up,
0: yeah, and then they have there's like a certain image we have of of like an artist it's a very kind of like upper class lifestyle we've now projected onto artists as mm-hmm. opposed to what they're usually like, which is. Very, as I said, very drab, unglamorous. You're not going to make a lot of money. You're going to live in like a shoddy apartment. Uh, but no, uh, now you look at whether you're, you're like a, a painter or a writer or actor. No, you, you're basically living the life of an influencer. So that's what the want. new
1: artist in today's world um, is basically just like a very polished virtue signaler.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it extends from like college. Because on college campus, you can pretty much play at being whoever you want like everybody's a, a poet or a playwright or whatever in college and it, it's a if you go to especially like a an elite school and you and you come from a comfortable background there, there's a very like high safety net and you get to live this like idealized life i think once people graduate they, they want to maintain that and they, they think that is the ideal that that should be strived for mm-hmm. and i mean he, he talks about like campus culture in under obama i think i think that's a totally different topic i think it's going to go for another hour if we talk about it but i consider myself pretty lucky in that because i graduated in 2010 uh like obamaism i mean it was the main effect of it was seeing his election so all the good feelings about that but the kind of like crazy stuff you know about halloween costumes being cultural appropriation and, and things like that that was like several years later so luckily or i had my own problems you know dealing with like the bush era culture but i don't know maybe that was preferable to the uh to the obama campus insanity that unfortunately i think that uh you know right wingers uh were had were somewhat right about in in
2: saying that this is crazy
1: i don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that yeah they had a point they are people
2: this is the trouble though right because like anyone who reads this book who's the people who's being critiqued, and I kind of wondered actually. I don't know, if Liza, you read a lot of reviews of the book or responses to the book, but I, I do wonder if like mainstream libs would read this book and be like, "This guy's a right winger," and that's the only reaction they can possibly come up with, right? Because he's be- critiquing well, it's because it's the only that they thing that art. they
1: can they can process. It's like if you are even to the left of us or the right of us, automatically you're just a right winger. So they, they yeah. can't tell the difference between people who are. I don't think that I don't think that liberals like. The, the kind that he talks about, liberal elites, I don't think that they believe or that they can fathom that people are to the left of them. I think that people are either insane or they are right-wingers.
0: <laughs> I think that's why they they hold on to the horseshoe theory so preciously uh, because it, it, it gives them the comfort that anybody to the left of us is actually to the right of us. Mm. they yeah, uh, they're not
1: they're not left they're just insane because we're as far left as you can go we're the left it, and it's like exactly
0: I, I don't it would really hurt their self-esteem if they realized they weren't as uh left or radical That they, they, they are the establishment
1: are. that everyone is re- that they um they are the ones who need to be resisted yeah yeah
2: the, because the, okay. Oh, go ahead. Phil. But but that's why this like the fact that this book exists is important, right? Because you had to put out there from popular people with with popular opinions and followers that like there is an alternative. Because if you don't give an alternative, then people will slip to the right, right? Instead of uh, trying to find something else. So it, yeah,
0: because if Brad Easton doesn't say this, and instead you get I don't know like a Ben Shapiro type says this, then yeah, problem is you know that Ben Shapiro type might be right about twenty five percent of it but then you got to buy the other 75% cuz mm-hmm. there's nobody else <laughs> saying it whereas Easton else maybe he's more like 50-50 maybe he's wrong on 50% of the stuff, but at least 50 is more than 25 you know so i, I you need more diversity of thoughts out there so that mm-hmm. you can you don't have to buy wholesale uh, because i think that is what the the woke establishment establish, establishment tries to do that anybody that dis- doesn't disagree with them will have to be so extreme that if you buy like say f- even 5% of of critique of like woke culture, you got to buy the repugnant ninety five percent that <laughs> like a Mike Cernovich or those people have, uh, and I think that's their goal. They want is to be it's, it's the Bush mentality. You're with us or you're against us, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they don't mm-hmm. want anything in between because they know that they have weaknesses. That a lot of like woke establishment stuff doesn't really make a lot of sense because they think they're so radical. How radical can you be when you got like fucking Super Bowl ads talking about which pickup? truck martin luther king jr would drive they, they are an establishment right so right they gotta do this double move where they're both dangerous and radical yet they are now the prevailing ideology among corporations
1: woke art is the worst art that you can ever find um do you remember when brett said that accusations of cultural appropriation are just anti-art and no way to live
0: mm-hmm. yeah. and that is
1: something that we talk about a lot too like Artists should never allow themselves to be policed like that. Yeah, woke art is just lacking in style. Um,
0: yeah, see, this is what the woke liberals have become. Do you guys know the painter John McNaughton?
1: No,
0: he's. I think he's like a Mormon painter. He became infamous during the the Bush era and mocked mercilessly by liberals for good reason because he's a terrible painter. He would make these super corny uh, paintings where he'd be like obama was stepping on the american flag and like george washington was crying and jesus had his like, hand <laughs> How is on that his different shoulder from
1: all the liberal memes <laughs> exactly but this is now. what liberals
0: have become um <laughs> they rightfully made fun of that shit like 10 20 years ago but now it's really the the mere equivalent of it this very mm-hmm. hacky sentimental childish um unartful bullshit
1: they preach a lot of tolerance but then they will quickly turn on anyone that doesn't fall in line with their agenda or their mm-hmm. ideology like they have become those relentless bullies
2: this is this is exactly why i want to know what the response to this book was right cuz like we ne- the conversation never gets past that point right someone on the someone on the unfortunately the right will have to say what you just said liza and then we don't get to hear what the response is because like they're indignant the you know they don't want to respond to these uh, accusations which are true i think Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I I think that um, I think that there are people who aren't. Um, I think that there's a lot of people that came to this book expecting something like White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo and they were <laughs> just completely disappointed. <laughs> that would be such <laughs> or, a fun switcheroo. Or switch just uh, extremely offended. Like I, I would actually I would love to see someone approach this book with those expectations and then write a review. Like, I wonder if yeah, that was
2: Ellis' plan all along. <laughs> well, here here's my here's my
0: plan. Uh give this book to somebody who doesn't really know who Brad Easton Alice is and be like, oh <laughs> This book, uh, it talk, you know, just actually don't even tell him what it's about. And it, it just say that, you know, he wrote a very famous book in the, the 80s. I was very critical of Donald Trump and, uh, you know, American <laughs> capitalism. they like, ooh, and, and they'll read it. <laughs> and then um, well, we'll see what happens. But, uh, okay, so we're, is, you know, a bit over over an hour. I think we should close it up soon. One thing I want to note, um, I noticed that Brady Snell is a great writer as he is, misused, bemused. I thought that was really funny. I think he used it as commonly misused uh to mean amused when it actually means confused it it doesn't make sense (laughs) in its proper meaning so brett if you're listening um you you either you or your (laughs)
1: editor fucked up
0: (laughs) hire chris Uh, (laughs) any closing thoughts guys
1: um yeah i think i i really i really admire that he just does not care what anyone thinks and he writes for himself and he writes what he thinks is cool and like he knows he sounds like the angry old guy on the porch and he doesn't care. And that uh, I, uh, I, don't, I, I agree with him. I, I don't think that art has any kind of responsibility to be moral. I love ambiguity. I love subver- subversiveness. Um, I don't like uncool art either. <laughs> you know, I, I, I keep mm-hmm. art cool.
0: I mean, I as I said, I don't actually like his novels and and all that, but I do admire that he has a special status as like a, a liter- modern literary like giant in you know American books, and he's in a special position to have uh, credibility on this issue, and he's not afraid of using it, even if it gets him a lot of grief. And I think it, I think he does see his his like journey as a novelist finished in that he's accomplished everything he wants in that format. So now he's like a podcaster, tweeter. I mean, kind of like, I guess he's become something he's hated, but it is the uh, the medium of our times and and he's going out on it. And I think he is needed because as I said, otherwise the stuff he says needs to be said, at least some of it. And if he doesn't say it, somebody much worse will say it. And then you'll have to buy into the rest of their agenda. And those people won't be as self-critical as Upright Easton Alice, so they're gonna be like, as I said, oh, you you want you want the the, the cotton candy, you got you gotta buy the pudding and all that, and the pudding's poison or whatever.
1: If you don't like his fiction, have you tried checking out like his um? Well, I mean, if you like this book but not his fiction, do you ever listen to his podcast?
0: I I want to. You gotta pay on Patreon, I think. So I, I don't know if I want to. Oh, you pony can find up. them
1: on YouTube. You won't get the whole thing, but you'll get like um clips. Mhm. They're pretty good.
0: Yeah. I know that the writer Otessa Mashfeg is. I think she's good friends with him, and she's, I think, following in that same uh, model of, of being like a like a harsh non non PC type of writer, uh, but also not like from the right. So uh, yeah, so I yeah, I'll, I'll check out more of that stuff. Uh, so listeners, thanks for thanks for joining us on this discussion of White by Easton Ellis. and then we'll be back next week with another episode. So happy February. <laughs> Bye, everyone.